0: You also mentioned at the State of Aviation luncheon about the perception of our airport. You referred to it as being antiseptic.
1: I think that's the word that I use. It's better than Soviet era architecture. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, I mean, it's just, you don't. That
0: is the lighter side of John Dixon, who can often be found poking fun of himself and his beloved San Antonio. But there is another side to John Dixon, a more serious side, One that worries about the vulnerabilities we face as a community, as a state, and a country to the relentless number of cyber attacks that occur every single day. He served as an Air Force Intelligence Officer during Operation Desert Storm and has spent more than 25 years as a security evangelist, author, and keynote speaker advising military, public sector, and commercial clients on matters of cybersecurity risk nationally and internationally, he is highly respected and in demand because John Dixon is a fixer. So it's no wonder that San Antonio Mayor Ron Nuremberg tapped him to head up an airport expansion task force that would determine the future of the San Antonio International Airport. On tap for this episode, cybersecurity, going through an acquisition, and expanding the airport. That means it's time to get beyond the bite. With John Dixon. How long were you a part of the Denim Group? At the time you joined them, they had just recently started.
1: Yeah. So it was uh, 2004, Sheridan Chambers and Dan Cornell started the company. Uh, we were in one room or two rooms, I think, in the, what was then called the Tech Center. And uh, on these folding tables and chairs and make, working the phones and and writing code. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was just, yeah, it was great. So, And then how did you come across Coal Fire? So we initiated a process, or I should say, we were approached by what are called investment bankers who uh, do these type of transactions. And I want to say it was 2019, 2018 at a a conference called the RSA Security Conference that I just was at last week. And we talked to them. They had heard about us through uh, our competitor. And we started going through this process. Now, the challenge is you're going through this process. uh, You're going to market. You're selling the company. And the old adage is, is you sell when you don't have to. You have to be in the market available for sale when it's counterintuitive. Where you're like, why would you sell? Well, that's when you sell because you can sell at a premium. If you and you can are, also say no, because you, you can know. say no, because you're still rock and rolling, right? right but but if you like if you're not doing well, the first thing to do during, during due diligence is they open up the books and say, "Oh my gosh, you're not you're not going to make payroll next month. Here we'll give you pennies on the dollar." So you kind of have to show not only do you have to be successful, have a good persona, have a good team, but you have to show year on year growth financial growth and sales. And that's essentially what they're, uh, what attracts you from the investment bankers and the acquirers. The process took, I'm going to get corrected when I say this by either Sheridan or Dan, uh, but probably two years. It's quite humbling. And uh, I'll just say, we learned a lot during the process. And it was like a lot of cross-examination exam- from the acquirers. Uh, we had one party that had an offer and we left them at the, at the altar and we went with another one with Coal Fire. And... Uh, ultimately was successful, but it was, it was tough. It was also during a pandemic and it was also in the middle of a move that we had my, uh, we moved into a new house. So it was, those are really, uh, in retrospect, fairly tough times. <laughs> uh, and, and the, the worst thing is they're asking you due, due diligence questions and you know, most of the answers, like, okay, this is how we did this, but they'll ask one in a while where you're just like, I don't even know what that is.
0: What was the transition like going from being your own boss to now having to work for somebody else?
1: Uh, That part wasn't as bad. I mean, that's what everybody says. They think that, like, I'm I'm such a narcissist that I can't work for somebody else. That's not it. I would just say it's a learning curve like anything else, and uh, you're trying to... To do all the right things, it was neat and it was also taxing, you know, in a, in a way. Uh, different corporate cultures and all that good stuff. But ultimately, sure. it was successful. Uh, I have a new set of friends; they're all over. Uh, I mean, it was it was the, the question that I have is is this something I want to do again? So post post coal fire, I left there in uh, at the end of October, and you launched your own firm. Well, it's it's really a consulting company doing non competitive stuff, right? honoring my non-compete with Sure, sure. Uh, In
0: 2016, CPS Energy invited Dixon to address the leadership of San Antonio's municipally-owned utility. Though the people in the room were CPS employees, his message was intended for anyone willing to listen. All utilities, public entities, government officials, elected leaders, and corporate CEOs. His message was simple and direct. Be afraid, be very, very afraid. It's been seven years since he gave that speech, so I asked Dixon if his stark warnings and his advice were heeded.
1: off the bat, all the organizations you'll be happy to hear have stepped up their game and and either doubled or tripled the team members and the defenses they have uh, that's across the board. Uh, the challenge is, is, the threat has gotten even more advanced, and I like to use the word metastasized in a, in a negative way. I mean, ransomware didn't exist, you know, a decade ago, and 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 so if you view it that way, that suddenly, again, small municipalities, school districts, uh, hospital districts become targets. Then it is a problem not just for Bank of America or Wells Fargo or USA. It's a it's a problem that everybody uh, has. So throw in the uh, the nation state. Conflict that we have right now in Ukraine, where the Russians have thrown everything but the kitchen sink at, at Ukraine to try to get them to do certain things that hasn't happened, hasn't like essentially come a- across the Atlantic and we haven't experienced uh, the direct uh, attacks that we're aware of, or I should say are in the public. But what's happening in Ukraine right now is advanced use of what's called wiperware. So think of ransomware without any chance of ransom, just to to nail them, uh, you know, to essentially knock out. The a goal target, is just to wipe them out. Wipe them out. And so for us in the industry, we're looking right now at Ukraine and that conflict as it's kind of a negative petri dish or a negative lab of what we think might happen on this side at some point. Now the good news is uh, there's a term called mutually assured. Uh, disruption that I think is in play here where uh, we most certainly at, at our nation state level, at the U S level have those capabilities. And, you know, those in glass houses, uh, it comes into mind that if, if you're going to do it to us, we'll probably do it back to you. And the other argument counter uh, for not, the reason we haven't seen it over here is I think they have their hands f- full losing the war that they have right now. So it would only get, uglier if it's spread outside those borders. And uh, I think almost all the providers out there are most certainly aware of what's going on there and have stepped up their defenses.
0: Is it an accurate statement to say that San Antonio is the largest epicenter of cybersecurity agencies and firms outside of Washington, D.C., including the government, the military, private sector?
1: I I would agree with that statement. So to say that we're number two is... Uh, Quite flattering because, candidly, 20 years ago, we didn't have that capability. But NSA Texas, uh, out behind near SeaWorld and 151 and 410, is a bustling campus. You just have to count cars. It's massive. It's massive. Uh, The 16th Air Force, which is on the southwest side of town in Lackland Air Force Base, uh, is essentially the Air Force's uh, center for both intelligence and uh, cyber they have a three-star general that's out there. There are at least ten thousand people that service that particular mission, so it is certainly the epicenter of that. Then you have the University of Texas at San Antonio. You've got the different NSA-accredited institutions here and then companies that support them. So it is a it is an ecosystem. It's it's almost as big as any outside of DC, and and, and we're growing that.
0: And even the Alamo Colleges have these teams that compete. And often Alamo Colleges or UTSA teams get hired by the Pentagon or others to try to find vulnerabilities.
1: Yeah, that's an an entire marketplace. And, you know, we call it by different names, penetration testing is the actual technical term. White hat hackers is the term that I don't use, but others use. It's ethical hacking is it too. Essentially, you know, the companies I've worked for and, 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 you know, run or been part of, have been doing that activity for 20 years which is a, which is to go find the vulnerabilities the the holes the security weaknesses before the bad guys do so think of you know the the movies out there, where they, they, you know, Ocean's Eleven, which are bad guys trying to find money, but you think of the movie Sneakers, where they get hired to go in. And oh, right. You think far less glamorous. Uh, command line is is, uh, and, and a Unix command line is not entirely sexy, but like it is, <laughs> it's true. But but essentially, we get hired and and you find things before the others do. That is a an entire industry out there that services uh, you know companies and organizations.
0: Well, probably I would say most people our age go back to their the first impression of this is the Matthew Broderick movie where he uh, sneaks into his school's computer to change his grades. Yes. Um, and, war, uh, games. war games. War, games. war and, games. And
1: by the way, there's an entire genre of hacking called war dialing where you do that, essentially dial random phone numbers to find anything that answers on the other end. that's largely uh, not as relevant as it was 20, 25 years ago. But the funny story that I have is... In circa 2000-ish, I was actually working in that facility, Cheyenne Mountain Operations Center, and as part of a a team, and we did find a modem. And and our whole reaction was, did you not see the movie, Matthew Broderick, 1983? It was like, there was a movie about that, guys. And uh, so, it was kind of funny. But so, uh, it's kind of fun, but also scary, which means that you really know... As a security consultant that's doing penetration testing or security evaluation, you really know the true state of what organizations are versus what their public pronouncements are. Yes, you say this, but we ran this scanner, we did this penetration test, and oh my gosh, you can do all these different things. And and quickly they fix the, those vulnerabilities, those weaknesses, but in general... That is an entire cottage industry that exists out there.
0: So you and I often um, make book recommendations to each other. You recommended that I read uh, Sandworm. I did the audible version of Sandworm uh, on a drive to Laredo recently, and you said, tell me when you get scared. (laughs) And I think I sent you a note that I was two minutes and 42 seconds into chapter one when it was quite alarming the potential... Of the disaster for a nation, state, or any other entity to come in and totally disrupt an entire city, state, country—it's
1: almost mandatory reading or listening for any of those that worry about such things. Again, I have this weird mix of background, both as a former intelligence officer, so I understand the threat, I understand what the other guys are trying to do, and also this visibility from being a consultant and having a true picture of how the security state of many organizations are. That's a really bad combination, uh, which means that you're like, wow, okay, you can do this. Now, the good news is, is almost all the financials are really, really good at this. You know, the big banks, the, because just simply because they get attacked all the time. But the truth is, is that this is a, a cat and mouse, spy versus spy type of thing that happens. And it's breathtaking how quickly, you know, these things change. So you've
0: been extremely involved in the community and your parents, I know I served on a bond committee with your mom, but both of your parents were extremely involved. And so was that sense of service uh, instilled in you by them?
1: Yes, Uh, John and Goge Dixon, uh, both went to Brackenridge. One was cheerleader and one was student body president, in class of (laughs) 60. And uh, so I had big shoes to fill. Uh, Mom was super involved, pre-K for SA, a lot of things. And as a matter of fact, um, a lot of people know me through her originally. Uh, But no, I've always had that sense of, of, I guess, whatever you want to call it, giving back to community. That's somewhat of a cliche these days, but I would say, Service. A, a service. Uh, and the way that I practice it is mostly volunteers, chambers, North Chamber Board. You were, uh, you were chair of
0: that North San Antonio chamber.
1: Yes. Uh, in 2007, I got to work very closely with Dwayne Wilson and the rest of the board, uh, Texas Lyceum chairman. Gosh, I want to say 2013 or 15, somewhere in there now. Uh, but I've done that for a lot. And, and the funny story is there was a year there that I was On the chamber board, the uh, greater SA chamber, the now greater, the greater SATX board or EDF board, I was on three or four things. And my wife came to me and said, I want you off everything and to be, I want you to be like a dad, you know, a dad. And I was like, okay. So I cleared the deck. And then, about seven months later, is when Ron Nurnberg called about the airport. <laughs> so,
0: well, and uh, that's a perfect segue to our next topic because I do want to talk to you about that. So, he appoints you uh, to head up this. Um, uh, what is it even called?
1: Air System Development Committee ASDC Air System. Don't don't feel badly. A lot of people just totally. Okay. The, uh, yeah. Everyone ASDC. calls it the
0: airport task force. Task force. Red red, um, red
1: blue ribbon, Ron's task force, mayor's task force, ASDC. So I want to
0: talk to you about that because you you had multiple goals there. Part of it was looking at expansion. Mm. Part of it was looking at what kind of airport do we want to be when we grow up? Who are we serving? Who might we serve in the future? How do we expand? While also future-proofing uh, the airport to make sure that we we don't do s-
1: a minor expansion when we really needed to do a massive expansion. Yeah. Well, let me start by saying we're on a great path. 2023, we're on a great path. Fantastic team. We'll go back to that. But going back in time, there is a perception that we had an airport that uh, was needed needing a major uplift. You know, uh, for those that remember. Uh, then CEO of AT&T, Randall Stevenson, cited the airport as one of many reasons that they left. And our inability
0: to have more nonstop, nonstop flights, flights that, that his senior executive team, they were not able to come back to, in time to go to their kids, soccer, football, volleyball games, yeah, which, which I, I
1: pushed back on that uh, tremendously. There's more to that story, but ultimately Randall Stevenson wanted to move AT&T to Dallas, and that's where we landed on that. But it created a, a strong, it reinforced a perception that existed. Uh, and so what this committee was formed to do initially was to answer one question, and that is, will it fit? Because there was also a perception out there that we need a regional airport. And if it weren't, But for that regional airport, we would be another city. And by
0: regional airport, the conversation seemed to be focused about something halfway
1: between here and Austin? Something halfway between here and Austin. And what we found out during the first two years of the committee was there was no path to a regional airport whatsoever. Uh, And as a matter of fact, Austin in uh, 2000 and, well, 1993, gosh, somewhere in there got Bergstrom Air Force Base handed to them, which is almost a perfect fit because they were trying to figure out a new uh, location for the airport. They had already, I think it was Mueller. Uh, was Robert the, Mueller. Robert I, Mueller was the airport. I've flown in and out of there. I did too. And it was it was more than obsolete. And so they were looking for a place right after. The, when the it bracket. was fairly
0: centrally located. It's much, mu- yes. But when you look at their footprint, it was tiny and it just... Austin grew all around it, and then they had difficulty trying to expand
1: it, they were like this they had the same problem that Denver had with Stapleton uh, twenty years before where they just like hemmed it in uh, and then it had no place to to grow and so that happened and it, you know two very long runways, uh, no limit to real estate, so that happened and from that point onward it's safe to say Austin was never really looking for a regional partner. Uh, the other thing that's quite true, if you look at the – well, we learned this in the, the committee. Number one, that passengers have options. So if you move uh, the airport north, that's great. That's part of the fastest-growing part of the state of Texas between here and Austin. Great, but what's what's due north or northeast of here? It's Randolph Air Force Base. So, like, that happens to be the busiest airspace in our region is right there, that point between 1604 and 35. Um, if we moved it south, passengers have options. You suddenly move away from that particular body of passengers and give them more excuse to go up to Austin.
0: Well, and it goes back to your question of who are we serving and who should we be serving in the future?
1: It's passengers. Ultimately, we have, I think, two uh, stakeholders, passengers for, and, and airlines themselves. Because airlines are, taking, are making bets and they're servicing gates and direct flights. And we, we are essentially, as the host, making some type of argument that, yes, if you bring a flight here, we will have the passengers that will make that flight profitable.
0: So we have in, I know people who have driven to Austin in order to catch a nonstop flight to London. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know people in Laredo uh, that will not fly out of Laredo, but they'll drive to San Antonio to get a nonstop from here to somewhere else. Uh, did you look at that kind of data to see Absolutely. who were all the people
1: that we saw? And I would also argue that Austin people drive down here to fly to Mexico, some of the nonstop flights into Mexico, northern Mexico as well. But 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 it's safe to say that this is a region, right? And we have two airports that are relatively close within an hour and 15 minutes, hour from each other, servicing two very different communities. And if you look at these regions- Bergstrom and
0: Austin. In and then, San Antonio. Right. But,
1: but our region is goes to Rock Springs, goes to Laredo, goes to, uh I mean, far south from here, including right. people from Corpus that drive up here. So one of the things we learned is, you know, we're competing for passengers, we're competing for uh, for airlines and more flights from airlines, but- they also are kind of in a weird way viewing us as a consolidated region, even if we don't think that. So there's that that come into play too. So, you know, I, I, I credit Jesus Signs and Jeff Coyle and the leadership team that is running the airport now with being acutely aware of the competition component of it and strategy, and uh, much more so than I've you know, was aware as a, a chamber person. And
0: Jesus signs is the aviation, aviation department director, director and, and Jeff
1: Coyle's assistant city manager right. and Eric, Eric Walsh too. I mean, city manager. I'll brag on those guys for a second. We have the right team. They have, We have, I've said this over and over and over again. I, I truly believe we have a set of people in the right places right now to make this happen, which is why I'm continuing to say, go, 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 go. Because between Eric, Jeff, Jesus and Jesus's team, we have an airport run by airline and airport professionals, like like I like none I've ever seen.
0: So you then began to weed things out one by one, and one of them was a regional airport yeah We it. said it will fit, most certainly fit. Okay. So it and any expansion that you were gonna do will fit in the current footprint, correct?
1: Yeah, just yeah. look at Google Maps. Yeah. To the right and to the left, terminal um, A, terminal B.
0: All right. Well, I wanna I wanna play this clip from the mayor. Um, this was at the San Antonio Mobility Coalition State of Aviation Luncheon, and it's the mayor's comments on that sort of sets the framework for the next thing we're going to talk about. San Antonio is the seventh largest city in the United States. Wouldn't it be a strategic competitive advantage to have a world-class airport right in the heart of the city where you're essentially 10 or 15 minutes away from any destination that a visitor or resident business would want to go to? So that began to set the framework for, uh, that really helped sort of cement the idea that it would fit in where it is now.
1: Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that came up was the length of the runways. We, we do need to extend the runways, but not to the length that was previously assumed. Uh, airlines, specifically airlines with the 787, have the capability to fly from SAT Two points on the globe that they couldn't even 5 or 10 years ago. So that's so we we were kind of lucky there because uh air, the airplanes that they have in their inventory now are more efficient, can fly further, have a further reach and honestly are quieter. Uh so so really it, what happened at that phase was that it turned over to the focus of of the terminals themselves. If the runways and taxiways and them are are, are are less of a planning consideration, it became a focus of the terminals. The terminals are what Passengers' experience. That's the, and so one of the main themes from our entire due diligence and discussions after those first two years was we are not exhibiting any local flavor of San Antonio, historical context, the culture. We have a very, you know, kind of bland terminal facility and we're leaving that on the table. Okay, hold on because I want to come back to that, but okay. I, w- I want to clarify something real quick because right now there's two
0: runways at The SAT? There's three
1: runways, and one of them is mostly for uh, civil aviation, but But, two two for commercial aviation. But for the commercial
0: aviation, isn't the bulk of traffic on one of those runways? That's correct,
1: because of prevailing winds.
0: At the State of Aviation Luncheon, about the perception of our airport, You you referred to it as being antiseptic.
1: I think that's a word that I use. It's better than Soviet era architecture. <laughs> it's like, no, I mean, it's just, you don't, of all the cool places. I mean, San Antonio leaves culture, has more culture oozing out of history, name it, out of every place. And then we go to the airport it's, it's just and you don't generic. See it. You, you don't, don't experience it. I mean, there's, I, I w- we just had visitors in this past week and I said, there's more history that's happened here in this square mile downtown than it's happened in the rest of the state combined. You know, that's may or may not be true, but like, I'll stick with that argument. Uh, But I do think we have a unique culture that has history and funny things, most of which came out during Fiesta, I would add. (laughs) Uh, The chanclas, all these crazy uh, things at the King William Fair, all the, no, in all seriousness, like we have that. Other places don't have that. And we, yet we don't, Exhibited either in an obvious way or less obvious way. Fly into Albuquerque, and when you fly into Albuquerque, it kind of it smells like pinion. It looks like they have some some beans. You, you can so, tell, you're in New you tell you're in New Mexico. Yes, just that. The other one is, I would say, the user experience is really the number one plan and consideration. Uh, the passenger experience from the time that they get there to the time they go to the gate, everything's focused around that. That was a key recommendation from this committee. Uh, The last one that was very interesting is that essentially we should have one eye on the future because much of Terminal B and in general, terminals are built for what they have in front of them at this point. Because we're not constrained as much by geography, we have a a lot of real estate that bake in some some capabilities for the future. Example is in our mock-ups, we had... uh, heliports for automated, you know, essentially uh, autonomous helicopters of the future on top of, I don't know if that's going to come to being, but, but if it, there are certainly places like DFW and others that are doing uh, right now that are doing, you know, RFPs associated with that.
0: Well, you, you ended your statement at the state of the aviation luncheon by saying we need to basically build a world-class airport within the confines of our funding structure as quickly as possible.
1: As much as we can afford, as quickly as we can get it. I got it down to like seven words. Okay. You know, like, like <laughs> just repeat that over and over and over again. Uh, I asked that question over and over and over. Like, who is the champion of the airport on council? And when we started this, it's safe to say that we really didn't have anybody on council. It was the mayor. That was. so Ron gets the lion's share of the credit for standing up this committee, making it inconvenient for all of us to ignore this particular problem. Uh, that's that's my job, by the way. That I, I say is like make it inconvenient for everybody to ignore the airport. <laughs> I, I, I say that in jest. But um, in all seriousness, now we're 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 blessed with a handful of council members uh that are championing this. And as a matter of fact, I think in District 7, Marina Gavito, who is on our ASDC is going to get elected in seven. So we'll have our first ASDC committee member on council in addition uh, to others that have been strong champions.
0: I want to talk about timeline from two perspectives. The first one is the timeline of the committee. Your committee has been meeting for over five years and that, that hasn't been easy. And the second timeline one I want to ask you about is the timeline from the idea. You've now released renderings when would construction begin? When would it end? And when would we be able to get exp- experience the new terminal?
1: First of all, the timeline is—I think it's five and a half years, six. But candidly, that I don't. You've know. been meeting. I, I mean, we had a pandemic in there. Uh, my company got acquired. I mean, like just life events have happened, so that it's—it's it's hard to. I'd have to go back and actually look at uh, look at it. What's most important, more important, most important is what's going forward. Uh, it, the latest is Q2 of next year is when we break ground, and 2028 is when we finish the the in, uh, the new facility, whatever we call it, new concourse, new terminal. And like I said, we we we're trying to move as quickly as we can. The challenge is this is a ginormous capital project, the largest that the city will do in our professional lifetimes. And
0: most airports are federally are, funded.
1: Anytime yeah. you do massive expansions. Ex- except for the terminals. The terminal funding mix is slightly different. Well, to,
0: uh, Local taxpayers paid for, the, for yeah. this last Terminal B expansion. No. Okay. So garage. so cl-
1: good good opportunity to clarify here. The way uh, the the... Entire airport is what's called an enterprise fund. There's no commingling of uh, city dollars and airport dollars. What so what that means
0: is whatever money's made at the terminal stays bingo, at the terminal.
1: Bingo. And okay. so you'll be happy to hear that you know your taxpayer dollars are not going to fund you know uh, airline Parks or nothing, anything else. Nothing, right. Yeah. So what that means though is that the way you fund terminal facilities is uh, two two primarily two ways. There's a lot of other ways. One is a passenger facility charge that gets passed through to tickets. But the, probably the bigger wild card and variable is the airline gate fees. Um, the, 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 what we charge, the rent that we charge to airlines to drive their airplanes up and right. park there and, and disbar- uh, disembark passengers. Essentially what we do is through a contract with the airlines, we will t- show them this brand new facility and additional gates and we also tell them that their their rent effectively will go up, and it's in that additional dollar stream that we can uh, float float bonds up and 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 build new airports. So it's not we're not getting any bond money from the city. We're not getting uh, we have we did just recently get it was a, a bunch of money from FAA uh, about twenty million to build a new part of a of a ground terminal facility. But for the most part. Uh, It is a dollar in, dollar out, and uh, no commingling of funds. We're going to compete for a series of grants from the FAA. So if we are successful, what that does is it just uh, allows us to, uh, it it just helps us a lot. Uh, But number one, we are going to chase those monies, uh, but there's no guarantees we'll get them. Uh, It it is a complex financial model. The good news is uh, Jesus has a guy on his team named Michael Fournier, who is a former, is a CFO who used to be at Southwest Airlines, and he's quarterbacking a lot of that that side, along with Ben, uh, the CFO for the city. And so, I mean, like they are acutely aware. So we're going to compete for whatever money is, pockets of money or b- buckets of money that are out there. But the main funding source is those, you know, those but other But those things.
0: grants that you would be competing for, those are things that would actually help, but they're not – being the terminal is not going to be held back if we don't get some of that. That
1: is correct. That's almost okay. correct. No, they're, they're, they're a cherry on top. They're, we're going to compete for those and win, pro- hopefully win our disproportionate share of those. But uh, they're not a guarantee.
0: During our interview, Dixon made numerous references to the economic development benefits from a new, expanded, and culturally rich airport terminal. So we thought we'd go to the source on economic development. Jenna Saucedo Herrera, who is president and CEO of Greater SATX. For her comments, let's go back to SAMCO's annual State of Aviation Luncheon held on April 21st, 2023.
1: We cannot talk about economic development without talking about the airport, right? And the airport as an asset is an economic generator in and of itself, right? $5 billion annually, right? That's significant. But in my opinion, and as a team, when we talk about the airport, we see it as an economic development enabler most people have no idea of that impact that that airport has. It's not just people flying in and out. It's the cargo, it's Amazon Prime, it's seafood. You'll be happy yeah. to hear that they don't truck seafood in from Louisiana. You know, <laughs> It's all these things that come in that allow us to have the lifestyle and access uh, that we do. It employs so many people directly and indirectly as well. It's an engine for economic vitality and also from a perception standpoint. It is the first thing you see when you fly in here. So it has a disproportionate impact on our future and our economic development.
0: And how often does it come up when our leaders go visit with other companies in other parts of the country or other parts of the world when we're asking them to move here and
1: create I think, jobs? Uh, I think it comes up every time. And in the way that I, I, I frame this, as I say, if we do a great job, like we being the full-time team, the volunteers, city staff, all of them, that we take a perceived economic development liability and we change it to being a perceived economic development strength so that people like Jenna Salcedo, Mark Anderson at, at Visit San Antonio can basically sell against other regions because of our airport. Airport is a game changer.
0: John Dixon, thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. That does it for this episode. Please join us again next time for another edition of Beyond the Bite. I would like to give special thanks to the San Antonio Mobility Coalition for providing the audio clips used in this episode. And a big abrazo to SAMCO Board Chair Jeff Webster, CEO Vic Boyer, and Senior VP of Administration Leslie Harlan. Beyond the Bite is a production of Aldrete's Strategic Partners in San Antonio, Texas, and is edited by the masterful Nick Chamberlain of EveryWord Media. This podcast is available on all major platforms, which means you have more opportunities to share it with friends, family, and colleagues. As always, until next time, thank you for listening.